Hi, I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Monica Banke. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. Today, we're joined by VP and Principal Analysts Ian Bruce and Craig Moore to discuss Forrester's 2022 planning assumptions for B2B marketing executives. They'll describe the key steps marketing leaders should take to succeed in the coming year. Welcome both. It's great to be here. Good to be here. Thank you. So perhaps unsurprisingly, last year's uh, B2B marketing executive planning assumptions was all around planning for the unpredictable. How is the sort of current uncertainty, unpredictability different or is it? pretty broad question, but let's start there before we dive into the specific planning assumptions we'll discuss. Well, we're certainly more familiar with the unpredictability continues to vex us. We don't really know what to expect in the months to come. Here we are sort of doing pandemic 2.0, but you know, some things have changed. And one of the things that we see is that customer our companies are really beginning to adapt to the new environment and are changing their behaviors. And one of the things that they're doing is um, they're, you know, they've got their people, their employees that are spread out in their virtual groups now. And when they're entering buying processes, they're no longer, you know, physically together talking to each other in the building or in meetings about what they're going through in their, in their buying processes. So we're seeing, and we've got a study coming out that described the number of interactions that buyers are experiencing in a, in a B2B buying process has increased pretty substantially. And I think one of the things that marketers have to anticipate as they go forward is to understand what that increased level of interaction is going to mean as they plan their market initiatives. Yeah, Jen, the, the other thing I would say is I, I think one of the lessons everybody on this podcast has probably learned over the last year and a half is that as professional prognosticators, we just need to be very, very humble. Um, you know, I, I think in times like this, um, there is a great deal of uncertainty that's continuing. Um, and there are indications of change. Craig, Craig just talked about one area where I think, you know, buyer behavior may be changing. But we need to recognize we're still in the throes of a lot of chaos. You know, COVID continues. The financial ripple effects of the COVID pandemic are still working their way through the economy. We're seeing supply chain issues. You know, some of the data that Craig and I and Monica have seen around the impact of COVID to date on B2B companies is just very, very different depending where you are geographically, depending what industry you're in, depending on the stage of maturity of the company you're in. It's just all very, very difficult difficult to predict at this point in time. So I think the big lesson is be humble right now. Well, you know, one thing that we definitely know is that companies that had traditionally planned their marketing initiatives based on an event strategy and lots of sponsorships and all that, that's gone. And, and so they, they now have to find ways to be more digital in their interactions with their buyers. And, uh, and so it, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of companies that have wanted to change from an event centric marketing strategy to something more technical, more digital and, and uh, maybe lower touch. Um, well, they're, they're there now. And I think part of what they have to do is to, to learn how to do it well. So that's a big challenge, I think, for companies that have traditionally counted on all those tennis sponsorships and all those kinds of things that have helped drive interaction. Um, there's a 
there's a new game in town. Hey, Craig, um, you know, it's interesting when you, you talk about there was plans, the plans were disrupted. Some companies did better at agility um, and, and pivoting on it. Do you think there's any, has there been a buildup of resistance to planning? And like, oh my God, we don't know what it's going to be anyway, so let's not bother. Or do you think it's gone the other direction where, where people go, we need to understand things a lot more so we can turn the dials when things happen. Has there, has there been a shift in the way that people are thinking about planning after what everybody's been through in the last 18 months? Well, I see both sides of it. Um, you know, I see organizations that today are trying to figure out what they're going to do for the coming year. And they really do want to understand what their business objectives are and lay out their plans in a methodical way. But I also see companies that are, you know, in the, the tighter cycles of running their programs and they're, they're introducing, I think, a level of adaptability into their marketing programs. It's, you know, kind of using agile concepts to, to really think through how they can react and respond to things that they haven't done before. They're going to experiment a bit with it and then uh, adjust their tactics from there. So I think there's, a desire to be more planful in the big picture. And you know, these are the ones that come to me and ask to help with their planning. So, you know, generally they're receptive to it. Um, but then when I when I talk to clients that are you know trying to figure out how to react to the pandemic, uh, they're trying to be more agile and more um, careful about their processes so that they can be more reactive to it. Yeah, I would agree. I, I think there's there's a lot of agility going on in marketing right now. There's a lot of kind of real time analysis of things and pivoting uh, based on what happened yesterday. Um, I, I think there is a reluctance to do long-term strategic planning, Monica, because of this. Um, and I think there's a realignment of strategic priorities as based on some assumptions companies are making about what are the permanent changes that are going to come out the, the back end of, you know, pandemic realities. You know, are we all going to be working remotely? Are we going to be doing face-to-face -face events? Uh, what are the economics of other kinds of demand generation activities or brand building activities in, in, in the face of all of this? It'll be, it'll be fun to come back in a couple of years from now and see if people have stopped doing longer term strategic planning, what the impact of that is. Um, you know, it's, it's, is, are we going to overcorrect um, in terms of how and where we're spending our, our planning time and our planning cycles. Well, let me uh, let me respond to that, because I think that there's really two things in that term strategic planning. There's the strategy, which is aspirational. It's long term. You want to yeah, you want to understand what the trends are. And right now it's pretty hard to predict some of the trends. Right. We've got an uncertain environment in which we operate. But a plan is what I'm going to do for the next year or six months or some reasonable period of time. And so sometimes when you bolt strategic and planning together, you sort of blend strategy and plan all in one thing, but they really are two things. And I, we all recognize the uncertainty in strategy. There's nothing wrong with a good plan that you can adapt and adjust as you experience, you know, all those things that might happen to you. But, you know, making sure that you've got some idea of what you're going to do is going to really help you uh, be effective strategy are you seeing the adaptability that you're seeing in with clients is that a for now thing or are there like operational foundational changes being made in the name of being adaptable and agile that will be long have long term 
effects. And it's just a new way of operating moving forward versus a for now thing that's happening. Well, I think companies that go to the, go to the effort of understanding how to do planning well, we're going to continue to do that. They're going to find that there's nothing wrong with doing planning well. And I think they'll continue to want to do that inside their organizations. Organizations evolve, people move in and out of jobs. And sometimes you find that, you know, there's levels of, of planfulness that will go up and down as they, as they change uh, personnel. But, but I think, you know, in general companies that really understand how to do a better job of marketing planning, aren't going to, aren't going to lose that. They're going to try to keep it. And that's, that's my hope. I mean, planning is one of the areas that I like to focus on. And, and, you know, I, I always feel great when a company can put together a good marketing plan and, and, um, you know, manage it over their, their timeframe. So I, I, I have great hope for B2B companies that are going to introduce and, and kind of follow the, the guidelines that we lay out for them. I think, I think Jen, some companies are, are what, what I, a CMO said, it's enforced AB testing is, is what's happening by which um, he meant that um, the pandemic created fundamental changes in a lot of things. And it created this environment where you could say, well, has that changed the outcome? So we're not doing as many events. Does that change the outcome for the business? It's an enforced A-B test. You would never normally do this in normal run of business, right? Um, there's a lot of things that have happened like that. And uh, as a consequence, I think businesses are reevaluating some tacit assumptions that they've just held in their minds for years and years. And that's making them reevaluate things like, should we be doing events at all? Should we be in the office at all? Should we be, you know, investing in social media? Whatever it is they're thinking about, they've got this enforced AB testing environment in which they can sort of answer some of these questions or at least re-question some of their uh, tacit assumptions about what works in marketing and what doesn't. And I think to Monica's point, this is going to be an incredible data set a couple of years from now to see how it all plays out, right? Yeah, we should revisit this podcast two years from now. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so so maybe let's get into some of the planning assumptions and the research here. Um, I think you know we've had this conversation around where do you focus new customer acquisition, um, your existing you know sort of customer set and and retention. What do you think is going to happen? And you know, for twenty twenty two here, are we are we going to see that emphasis on existing customers continue moving forward? Well, companies are becoming more conscious of the importance of their customer retention efforts. Now, some companies are dealing with perpetual licenses, they're selling software, things like that that they can renew over time, and they can take full advantage of the 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 fact that it's easier to sell to a customer to retain them than it is to go find a new one. But I see companies today that are selling traditional you know, SKUs, devices, things that have to deliver, and they are trying to shift to a recurring revenue model of some sort or another. And so they may have the first sale that is the thing that they've sold, but they're really beginning to take more of a look at any of that software support or system or whatever the the maintenance is that they can derive out of it and treat that as a recurring revenue source and to manage it as such. So I see companies across the board in B2B really paying more attention to 
what they're doing to acquire net new customers, and then what they're doing to retain the ones that they have. Now, I also think that the introduction of the, the Forrester Revenue Waterfall, which we introduced at our summit in May of this year, is going to have a big impact on companies that use it. Because what it does is it allows you to analyze the, the, the opportunities that are coming through of acquisition, retention, upsell, and cross-sell. And you can begin to understand what the impact that those are having on your business as a whole. So I think what it's going to do is to take you know, the traditional demand waterfall, which is really kind of a measurement device and, and not really completely strategic, but important. And I think it transforms it into a whole new view of how you think about your entire business. You know, understanding the waterfall and assuming that that is comprehending what marketing does and what sales does, and it's the pre-sales life of the buyer and it's the it's the post-sale life of the customer all represented in there. You know, it gives you a really masterful view of what is going on in your business, and um, and so I think that companies are well the the, the leading companies are really beginning to adopt this view. And I think that it won't be long. And when we look at this podcast in two years, I think we'll find that companies will be very involved in better understanding what those different opportunity types are across the organization and how marketing is supporting each of the different opportunity types and how sales is supporting them. So have you seen um, one of the reasons in the past why marketeers have not really dealt with customers was a, a perceived conflict with sales. Sales owns the customer, that they are the owner, and we don't want marketing in there because sales owns the customers. What happened to that in the last 18 months? Because there is a shift. We see the shift. We predict that the shift will continue. Um, how, how did Are we suddenly best friends between marketing and sales? Well, you know, I think there's a little bit more trust between sales and marketing that's going on. Um, you know, the fact that sales didn't want marketing in there probably was due to the fact they didn't know what they were going to do when they got there. And um, and if they can predict and understand what it is that marketing is doing with their customers and interacting with them, then that's going to be helpful. Now, if you look at all these interactions that customers are having with your company, whether it's sales or marketing, you know, it's on the rise. And a lot of those things are digital kinds of interactions. And I think sales has a good view of what those are. So I think they can anticipate what kind of experience the buyer or the customer is going to have as they interact with marketing or sales. And that probably is increasing the level of trust and making it easier for both marketing and sales to interact with customers throughout the cycle. While we're on the topic of trust, yes, trust between sales and marketing, but let's talk about the, the impact of building trust with customers or um, acquiring new customers. How how has the role of marketing executives changed in establishing that, building that, ensuring that's, you know, consistent? Yeah, I um, trust is obviously a, a significant area of research for us right now. Um, and part of the reason for that, I think, is that we and everyone has suddenly become perhaps more aware of how important trust is over the last year or two. It's not that it's become more important, I think. Um, it's become more evident, more undeniable um, how, you know, the relationships 
that we persist, the trusting relationships that we create. And it's not just in a business setting, it's in, you know, a political setting, in a, a greater social setting. These things have suddenly become very um, significant in our lives in a lot of ways. Um, so I think that's put a lot of emphasis um, on trust. But if you look historically, we, we looked at data going back over a decade um, from various research firms that have looked at levels of trust um, in B2B organizations. And trust is always the most salient attribute that they track. We looked at you know 20,000 responses to multiple surveys. Um, it's always the most important at- brand attribute. Um, the salience of trust, though, does vary a lot in settings and in context. It varies in different industries. So, for example, trust is far more dominant as a brand attribute, an important attribute for our businesses in the security space, which you know we could have guessed at. It's very important in financial services. Again, health healthcare. It's we could have guessed that. It is uh, less of uh, a concern in manufacturing. Um, so it depends on the industry and the setting. And what it actually is pivoting on here is a kind of calculus that buyers and others make around the risks and rewards. Um, So the salience of trust, its importance can often pivot on this concept of risk and of reward. And in a B2B setting, this gets very complicated because um, the risks and rewards accrue both to the individuals that are making buying decisions as professionals, but they also accrue to the organization that they represent. And the recent research that we've looked at has shown that when you look at these risks and rewards, the risks tend to accrue to the individuals making the decision and the rewards tend to accrue to the organization that they work for. And so there's this gap that exists in the risk reward calculation, which encourages the, um, I'll use the acronym, the CYA phenomenon, right? So it encourages this, what is often referred to as the, you never got fired for buying IBM phenomenon, right? That thing. So People don't buy the best solution often. They don't buy the most logically sound solution. They buy the safest solution very often. And um, this has become a a dominant way of thinking in the current pandemic. So it's become much more important to analyze. Trust has become much more salient in people's minds because of all the reasons I've talked about. But it's always been there. It's always been important. Ian, how do you make a decision as a... B2B marketing executive on how much to invest in changing your position of trust, A, understanding it, and B, moving the needle on it. Because it's it's one of those ROI things, and there's so many of them out there when we think about customer satisfaction. It's like, we all know it's important, but how many people actually put real resources into it because the causation is so difficult to measure. So how are we, how, how, how would a, B2B marketing executive know what level of investment is right for them? I think it's an excellent question, Monica, and we shouldn't underestimate the complexity of of this as well as the difficulty in justification because, you know, analyzing what trust is and and the risk-reward calculation is hard. One of the things that uh, we've done with colleagues at Forrester is is try and decompose trust, if you like, into a set of attributes, which we call the seven levers of trust, which is one way of making a fairly abstract concept, trust, into something that is very concrete and actionable. And by looking at the, the way these seven levers of trust, the seven attributes of trust, if you like, 
play out in different scenarios and different industries under different circumstances for different buyers, you can start to pull on these levers in different ways in your marketing campaigns to activate around them. So that's that's one way, and I'll, I'll give a couple of concrete examples in a second. The other way, I think, is to, is to position your organization on a matrix of risk and reward from the buyer's perspective. You know, going back to what I talked about earlier, in different industries, risks and rewards play out very, very differently. So have a candid conversation, use data to understand where you sit in that risk-reward calculus and to understand where your competitors sit, right? And that can help you understand the salience of trust. It can help you get inside the mindset for decision-making that buyers make at a very concrete level. And that can help you understand better how to uh, activate around the dimensions uh, of trust. To give, give a couple of concrete examples, we interviewed um, a number of CMOs in our research over the last year to, to understand how they think about um, trust in different, um, in different industries. And just to give um, one example, there uh, was a, a company that is an IT company that is involved in uh, cutting edge product development that is used in uh, call centers, for example. So they are at, at the forefront of um, uh, voice-to-text trans- um, translation, natural language processing, technologies like that. It's a very sort of cutting-edge stuff. When we talk to the CMO about, you know, what are the attributes of trust that matter most to, to their buyers in that kind of environment, um, two levers came to the forefront. One was competence, that is to say, that they were experts in their field, given that it's a very cutting edge, fast moving, technologically innovative space, they need to have show competence and expertise. But fast on the heels of that, which was really interesting, was this idea of empathy, that um, the organization could step in the shoes of the buyer and understand the specificities of the concerns and cares that they have, and that they could empathize with that and activate around it. And the reason that that second lever of trust came to the forefront was because the the way that the technology was used was very, very different for different buyers in different markets. And that degree of empathy was really important so that they could customize um, the capabilities of the technology to meet the specific needs of a buyer. So that would be one, one example of how I think a CMO could activate on that risk-reward calculus and perhaps activate then on pulling levers of trust in the right direction. Who's if if there were such a thing, maybe there is, I don't know. Um, what role in an organization if, is the chief trust officer? Is it the CMO? Is it the chief customer officer? Is it the CEO? Like who 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 kind of owns? Who do who do I talk to to say you're the person? You're the person that has to deal with with trust and making sure trust exists. Who's the coordinator that that like the hub of that? So there are um, a handful of, you know, Fortune 500 companies that have such a beast, a chief trust officer. They are emerging and they're emerging from two places. Um, there is, you know, a part of the organization that has historically looked at um, security and risk as a, as a set of concerns for the business and emanating out of that can become, you know, a position of um, chief trust officer. So it can come from that angle. Um, so that would take more of a ten- technologically centric view of things. Um, but the other place is absolutely the CMO, um, is, you know, the person that is in charge of the reputation of the organization and maintaining that positive reputation and building brand equity. 
that's another place where this role can emanate from. And those those are concerns that need to be shared, right? Um, ideally, that role would sort of embrace both aspects of trust. That um, aspect of trust is which relates directly to risk for the business and for buyers, and that aspect of trust which relates to you know enhancing reputation. I also believe that the values of the company are a reflection of its leader, and so I think a, a, if a leader is not inherently trustworthy, then it's hard for the organization to fake it. And um, and you know we've seen that in companies that we've we've watched throughout our lives and and so i think that there's you know a parallel factor that you have to consider is that you know this is one of those things that really is embedded in the values of the people that are there about the values of the people that continue to work in an organization you know they organizations sort of align to the principles that come from the top and uh and so i think that's there's just a, a lot of truth to looking at different organizations, understanding how they behave and thinking about how that might relate to the values and the personalities of the people that run those organizations. Does this also sort of jive with the, you know, B2B marketing execs remit, meaning, you know, what you're talking about here is not just a messaging exercise. This is deeply embedded into experiences or how we understand our buyers and the users of the product. And so that note about empathy really struck a chord with me because that's just, you need to deeply understand what your, your buyer or your customer is going through to kind of trigger, you know, levels of the levels of trust that you would want your buyer or customer to have with you. So I think there's a connection there to like, this is a, a bigger remit thing. And it's not just like a, a marketing campaign exercise that one is undergoing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I would completely agree. I think, I think a lot of marketing folks, you know, talk a lot about customer intimacy. It's this phrase we use a lot and we don't, dig into what that really means. Um, and that's what empathy is, right? Um, uh, so I think, yes, this is a bigger remit than a campaign. It, it isn't something that lives on a web page. It's a set of statements, you know, um, a set of virtues that we espouse. It's a, it, it lives in action and experience. Um, and going to back to what Craig talked about, you know, it, it, there's a spectrum of that. Um, it lives in the actions that you, um, that you have with interactions with buyers, all those touch points that Craig talked about, but it lives in the values that you live by as a, as a company and as an organization um, and how you activate around those things. So it spans everything from corporate social responsibility at one level, all the way through to, you know, you know, sales interactions and post post sales stuff with customers and all of those customer experiences. It's hard not to think that, um, we, we have a lot of tired CMOs out there as they take on trust as a remit, as they take on, you know, customers and customer growth, retention, you know, experiences as a remit, you know, the, the, the mandate, the charter of the marketing organization, certainly in the last 10 years, 10, 12, 15 years has grown so much and you'd think it would, it would level off at some point, but it, it seems to continue to grow more and more. 
I would agree, Monica, but, you know, there's a flip argument to this, I think, which is, you know, if, if you drill into what, you know, the, the KPIs are for a CMO today, they're often one or two things, and they're all focused on near-term demand generation. That's it. So there's a lot of talk, but the KPIs for most C- CMOs are designed to, uh, to be executed inside a quarter and to feed the sales beast. That's That's what they are. And what we're arguing here is that I think CMOs need to take seriously some other um, KPI, some other goals, some other strategic objectives that have a long-term impact on the viability of the business and that they should own. And that's very different to, I think, the lip service that is often given to, to some of these issues and the ferocity with which they engage around, you know, getting leads or whatever it is they're doing. Um, I think there's a big gap there. So obviously, you know, a lot of what we talked about are are longer term endeavors, you know, in this episode. But do you have recommendations of what B2B marketing executives should be thinking about now or some near term steps of, of things to consider, steps to take to succeed in 2022? I think, you know, going back to my humble comment at the beginning of this prognostication call, um, I would say, you know, be humble, be prepared for change. I think agility, uh, which Craig talked about, I think is critical. Uh, Build in a degree of flexibility into your planning and look for opportunities. I I mean, it's going to be a very changing environment over the next 24, 48 months. Um, And that will require you to pivot, be prepared to pivot. And I think it's important to recognize the changes that have taken place in your organization and in your buyer's organizations over the last 24 months. When a lot's happened, it's changed the way we operate. And if you haven't identified the things that have changed and adapted to them or optimized them, then it's time to do that. Um, You know, it could be that your buyers are interacting with you differently. As I pointed out, they're interacting with you more frequently. And if you haven't really recognized it and understood what the implications are in your organization, it's probably time to really think that through. So, you know, look back and see the changes and use that to guide where you're going. I think we're, I think the changes that we're, we're experiencing are, are permanent. They're, they might adjust a little bit, but I think that some of the things that we've seen change are going to be there for the long run. Makes sense. Well, thank you both for joining us today. Thank you very much. My pleasure. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.